Hennessy Files podcast series. Proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. Welcome in, folks, to another episode of the Hennessy Files. Stoked to have in the chair today the modern voice of professional surfing, WSL commentary guru Joe Trapel, the man with the golden tonsils. He's back in Australia for this extended leg of the newly formatted World Championship Tour. Great to have him back in here in Manly. And uh, welcome in, Joey. How you going, bud? Ah, uh, Demi, so good to see you. Great to be back in Australia, living the good life, my friend. Mate. <laughs> It feels like you spend as much time in Oz as you do at home. <laughs> How's it feeling for you? Oh, it feels great. I, I thought about that a lot, you know, when the world sort of stopped. And, and I was here last year with you at Manly calling that event when, you know, Chris and Tyler, Banting, Leo, and then all of a sudden it was like, wait, what? Snappers canceled? And so How then, weird was that? That was so trippy because we still had to finish the event, remember? So yeah. we're getting these whispers like, wait, I think the CT is going to be moved and New Zealand's going to get postponed or canceled. And so all of a sudden I was thinking about with all the trips that did get canned, like Australia's still been there for me. So it's, it's really nice to come back every year. I really feel it as like a lucky opportunity to, to be back in your amazing country. I was actually thinking about that the other day when, because you guys were all ready to jump on the plane to go to NZ, right? When it actually got canned as a part of the WSL, what were you thinking moving forward? Were you going, is this it? I couldn't even get that far ahead, to be honest. Like we were, I remember I was here and I was with my family. And so, you know, no one wanted to go home yet. (laughs) So we were (laughs) like, all right, let's hang out in Avalon. I honestly was thinking, okay, maybe in a couple of weeks we'll know if Bells is on or whatever. I was, I wasn't, I didn't have any idea the world was gonna change like that. So all of a sudden we realized that the last flight back to Hawaii was coming up. We heard Everyone an announcement. We're like, maybe we should get on that flight. So I was pretty like in the moment with the whole thing. And even, even by, you know, when the Aussie leg got canceled last year at the CT level, I was still thinking like we were going to start soon. I just kept thinking like, okay, yeah, soon enough, soon enough. So I kind of had that feeling through all the cancellations until they finally shut down the whole year. Then I was like, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> this is this is a lot bigger than I imagined. Yeah, pretty heavy for not only the athletes, but the people who actually run the whole, you know, the World Championship Tour. Now, going back to Pipe, when it restarted in December, how weird was that? Because I spoke to Jeremy Flores about this, about the, the weirdness of no crowds at Pipe. How did you find that as a commentator? It was bizarre. I mean, there's more energy at that event than anything in the world because there's so much on the line, typically the last event. You know, obviously this is the first event, but still it's Pipeline where it just is the best viewing ever. You're on the beach, you can hear it thundering, there's people everywhere, and even the houses are jumping with noise. Uh, And yeah, to have it just silent was was really eerie because even yeah, on a free said. surf at pipeline it's just never like that so think about for the event in the lead up everyone's on the beach hanging and so then when the contest started it was quiet so it wasn't like it'd been quiet it's just just during those events to follow the protocol for safety to have that event there it was all of a sudden the crowd would be way down by past the beach park there's people still trying to you know hang <laughs> from far away but <laughs> 
Yeah, it was wild. You're like, wait, this is a CT, and it is as quiet as can be. Like you're surfing it out a reef with two friends or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and moving forward to Newcastle, and we've just completed Narrabeen. The one thing Jeremy said everyone got out of it was that mass energy you get out of a crowd. Did you feel that? Because the Australian fans are, are pretty passionate, but I don't think I've seen it at that level for a long time. That was insane. The energy was it was like instant reminder of how big a crowd really means to any sporting event, you yep. know, for reactions, for even performance levels. Like there's certain surfers that rise to that, like you, you know, the Medina, the Italo, and even guys that don't show it as much, even John, you know, and he stands and looks at you after he pulls something like every surfer has some sort of energy they feel and and their performance is affected by having that crowd either back them or not you know there it's a, it's really really tangible and, and newcastle and narrabeen it was massive there's people everywhere and it was the coolest thing in the world when we commentate at manly for the challenger event there is a certain energy and excitement level that comes out in the fans when you have twenty five thousand people packed into that stadium into that arena it's pretty incredible, but I still don't think it matched the level of froth and vibe we saw down at Narrabeen and Newcastle. Like most sports around the world, COVID has changed the landscape. We haven't had any crowds and seeing so many people down at Narrabeen, it was like an explosion from the fans who wanted to let it all out. And I think the athletes themselves saw their own performance levels raised on the back of that. You know what's interesting? The U.S. Open at Huntington Beach has a bazillion people. Yep. And, you know, I think in Manly we feel it too with a huge beach. But there's a lot of other things going on, like the U.S. Open as well. So I think the difference which made the crowd so intense was like Newcastle. It's like the fans going down there, they have a pretty high surf IQ. And they're watching every exchange. You know, so it felt like there was this this rhythm of their cheer was like they actually were following along with the entire heat where sometimes in Huntington Beach when there's a big surf festival there is that crowd but it almost gets like washed in it gets shifted the people that are just hanging out you know so it was yeah. very intense focus on every wave ridden and I think that was like with the Brazilian crowd with the Australian crowd it was a really powerful even before heats, Alex Ribeiro is looking going, wait, they're cheering for me. You know, like they were singing songs as he was walking down and everyone's going, oh, that must be Medina. And it was like, no, that's Ribeiro. That's you can he, actually hear it. Oh, it was insane. When you're at home, I was sitting here at home working <laughs> and I could hear it. I'm like, who are they cheering for? And all of a sudden Alex walks down the beach. I'm like, and you could nearly see the look on his face was like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. He's like, Far out. This is great. Yeah, that's right. Let's go win this thing. You know, it's really cool. Now talk about the performances of those first two events. I mean, really they lucked in the waves because two are venues that are historically great venues, but you've got to get them when it's on. Right. So Narrabeen had really good waves. I was just talking to you before we came on about how clean it's been for like the last seven days where it's been basically offshore, subtly swell, really good conditions and prime conditions for pro surfing. But how has the performances been in those first two events on the Australian league? Oh, they're insane. And like you said, finals day at both events are you kidding me it was like sunshine super Different fun manly. yeah i was like what yeah, what's going on it was just like building because obviously we went through some smaller days at, 100%. and like it was almost flat the first seating round day and i always think seating round 
just start begin because no one loses it sets yep. up seed for the other rounds and you want to have the best waves when it really counts and that just sort of worked itself out especially at Meriwether and then even at Narrabeen it was actually like not that ideal swell direction it was all that south swell yeah. but this the bank was so good it was actually like it gave the left some options it was it was like a crazy amount of luck that went into it where it was clean all day and even with more southerly angle, there was still like insane lefts and good rights. And I think uh, I think we really scored, especially when I woke up the day after finals day, I looked at the waves. It was horrible. <laughs> like the day after it was just, oh, it was you wouldn't have run heats at all. And it was, it was a completely different contrast of, of how, how good the waves were the day before. Anyone really surprised you in those first two events where you just thought, holy shit like this is a performance level which i'm not used to out of this athlete yeah well the obvious surprise was you know the morgan, morgan. Sidlick story yeah. i mean that was just crazy i actually called him right before pipe started because i had heard him on a few podcasts and i kept hearing uh different versions of his last name being pronounced and so i just hit him up and i was like hey morgan how do you pronounce your last name and he just he was cracking up and he was going yeah, you could say it. He named like five different versions. And I was it's like, Siblick, isn't it? It's Siblick. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's how I say it. Yeah, Siblick. That's perfect. And he was going, I think Siblick sounds the best. So, yeah, let's go with Siblick. And I, I mean, he's like, Yeah, he's such a mellow cat. He was like, Oh, but I don't care. Whatever you say. I was like, No, no, no. I want to say it how you want. And he's like, Siblick. And I'm like, It's on, you know? I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now. Has there ever been names? that have absolutely rattled you because because uh, <laughs> as a commentator i'm yeah. not very good i do the beach and stuff and, and i and i listen to you and I, there are a couple of names over the course of the time i've been commentating where i've just totally <laughs> fucked it up what i love about yourself and guys like schmoo and and guys have been doing it a long time you never seem to get it wrong do you ever get it wrong oh for sure i've made mistakes in the past and i love it when some especially with their name a name is so valuable it's and it's like it's your name you know so i love when i have been corrected in the past i think there was one he's on the he was on the qs insane surfer from costa rica noemar mcconigal oh, yeah. um and that one his dad actually reached out because i had a pronunciation wrong where i was saying nomar and instead of noemar and so in spanish it's the difference of saying no mars no ocean <laughs> you know oh, okay. and that's not his name it's noemar and that translates into something better about the ocean, like something being a part of him. So when he reached out to me, I was like, thank you so much. That is awesome. You know, so I, the, here and there with, through the QS events, sometimes there's one where you're like, oh boy, where do I begin with this one? And I try to hit up everyone I know <laughs> that might know them to be like, how do I do it? And every once in a while you land it, uh, you, you have a good feeling for it. And sometimes when someone calls you after like maybe the first time you say it, you can like, make sure you get it right and and bianca's was really hard for me as well it was like the was, with the pronunciation of like and having that like part at the end the, is just the south african part she right said. and it's it's not something that all cultural like cultures grow up being able to pronounce so she was really nice with me too of like saying okay you're almost there you know keep practicing and good thing we had rosie hodge who could break it down for us so it was that was really helpful my one would be was classic because i used to call him b de bridge Oh, and right. He'd, and he'd go, Dimmy, <laughs> seriously, you've known me since I was 10. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll just go, you know what? And there are heats at QSs, right, where I'll look at it and I'll look at the guys like Terry McKenna and that. And 
And I'll just put a cross in and you go, what are you crossing? And then I'll go, I know this is going to be a bad heat. So I just go red, white, yellow, <laughs> blue. And, and because my job is to just keep scores. I don't have to be an analyst at all. My job is I know my job. And I'm like, I'm not going there. It just rattles me. There's so many funny heats. There's one on the QS. It might have been it, Manly. You might remember this one. It was like in the same heat. It was Carlos Munoz, Seth Moniz, and... There's another one. It was amazing. Seth Moniz, Alejo Muniz, and Carlos, Carlos Munez. Munoz. That's what it was. All in the same heat. And you're like, oh boy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so th- those that can just be like on. tongue twisters. Even though you can say them all, it's just those are the heats you're like, oh, here we go. Mate, I want to step back into your life's journey. Let's talk about where it all started for you. Where did you grow up and how did you get into surfing? Yeah, I grew up, it's interesting, I was born in California, and then I moved to Hawaii when I was six, five or six, and then we uh, were right in Manoa, uh, the Manoa Valley, which is really close to Waikiki, and my dad was a surfer and a lifeguard, and we would just, on the weekends, he would just be like, Joseph, you know, he always called me Joseph, and he was like, time to go surf, and I would be like, ah, I'm playing with my friends, or we're playing baseball in the front yard. So I'll pay you a quarter for every wave you catch. I'm like, oh, guys, I got to go. I got to go work. So we'd go down to Waikiki, and he would just push my sister and I into waves, and we'd ride a lot of boogie boards and cruise. And that time of my life was so interesting because of how invested I am in pro surfing and this industry. I had no idea. Those sessions with my dad and my sister, I don't even remember like putting wax on the surfboard. It was like so simple and beach days and riding the wave and my dad would always just celebrate the ride he didn't really say like oh you did a good turn or form or technique or anything he was just like how was that wave how was that drop like how long how fast were you going it was uh i always think of my dad as like the all-time soul surfer he had no idea who the current reigning world champ was or reigning pipe master he didn't know what was going on the time right now Oh yeah, he, he he learned it, he watched a lot for sure. But it was interesting because back then, it was all about the ride. I think the only surfer he ever talked about was Greg Knoll because that was uh, the shaper of the boards he rode back in the 60s. So uh, it was pretty cool. He was pretty, uh, just, I love those natural beginnings of just simply riding waves, really fun. Your sister, she's actually been a part of the surf industry as well. Is she still working for Volcom? Uh, she went from Volcom and then started Sister Revolution, which is the uh, women's wow, brand she, of Visla. Yeah, yeah, she did that with Paul Nade, and she's since moved on. So she's actually just left the industry for the first time in a very long time. But uh, yeah, she signed Lakey Peterson and then uh, got into a bunch of cool creative stuff out in Joshua Tree. Lives in the desert now and just had a full like... In Joshua Tree? Yeah, she lives in the desert and is having a blast. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so... You moved to California when you're like in your teens, correct? Yes. What, what was the difference in the cultures between <laughs> the North Shore, where it's pretty much Aloha and everyone's pretty casual and cool, to the manicness of California? Yeah, it was a it was a big culture shock. And so, so I yeah, I lived in Manoa, so it was like a little bit more busy. You got like the town life and stuff. And then uh, we moved to Southern California, and while everyone you know, this, the whole culture shock was big for me. I remember thinking, oh, we'll we'll probably be in California for a year and then just move back. You know, I wasn't thinking we'd stay. And, uh, it was just, just even the way you speak, your rhythm, the, the clothes I wore was even a little bit different. I wasn't wearing all these surf brands at the time. And 
And then it was like, I was in Orange County though. So it was like the backyard of the surf industry. And it was, it blew my mind on so many levels. And my days at the beach were pretty simple back in, back in Waikiki and, and hanging out with my dad and, and sailing and all that stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, contests and industry. And whoa, I want to learn about that. That sounds insane. And, and I'm just trying to learn about wearing wetsuits and <laughs> going to the beach in a different way. So did you spend a lot of time at Trestles? Not right away. I okay. did eventually, Later. but the beginning stages, I was right around Salt Creek and Dana okay. Point yep. and then getting dropped off at Doheny and it, that's like fun little longboard wave. And then soon enough, it was like, oh my gosh, Trestles is there. And I would surf over lowers. I was always surfing uppers in high school and, and that was uh, always less crowded, which I'm still attracted to today. <laughs> in your teen years, bit of a rebel. <laughs> Let, let's talk about something. <laughs> L U N. <laughs> Come on. Wow. Wow. Those were the days. Yeah. You, you had to, Honda. Oh, you had to. Yeah, I had to go there. Uh, Tell it me was about fun. It. Well, it was really like um, I moved to Redondo Beach and I had a roommate named Lun. His name's Lun and he's he's a legend. And and he had, didn't know how to swim. He had never been on an airplane. He never had a beer. You know, he just w- grew up, I think, in, in like the pasadena area and all of a sudden we're like dragging him around to shows and started playing punk music we named our band after him and uh, he was really really shy but it got to the point where he'd come up on stage and introduce us as his band it was like the coolest thing to see him grow and uh just gain confidence and he would have a beer with us he'd go down and you know he learned how to swim he travels now it was a really cool thing and he was like our mascot basically to our punk band and it was, it was a lot of fun playing shows. You know what? I looked at it and I looked at some footage of you guys. You guys were good, mate. <laughs> like, seriously. Thanks. You look so young. Oh, geez. It was a long time but, ago. But what was the music scene like? I'm a music lover, as you know, and yeah. uh, I love the music scene. And uh, what was, how much fun was it growing up in Cali? Because that is like the hub, really, of, you know, of not just punk, but just everything that, you know, that involves uh, music. Oh yeah, it, you don't have to look hard for a show, and that you could find a show every weekend. You know, from Orange County, San Diego, L.A., like even through the Inland Empire, we would always find little punk shows to go to. From, you know, obviously like Pennywise and Strung Out and Mill and Colin and Pulley, No Use for a Name. It was like all that kind of type of music that Taylor Steele was putting on his surf movies. And so it, it was a huge influence on us if, and social distortion as well. And, and all of a sudden it was like, meet a few friends that are, that are into playing music and we're like, should we start a band? Yeah. You know, let's write one. And I remember first song I wrote was about a, a burrito, you know, it's like <laughs> so silly, but we still, we even put it on our first CD because we're like, well, that's our first song, you know, you but, gotta uh, put it on. We, let's keep it. But, um, but yeah, after that we started actually really getting into songwriting and lyrics and and i really enjoyed that process which was uh gosh i still enjoy today i was gonna say you love it don't you that's that's, as a musician it's part of what makes me happy i don't know how you feel to it there's a certain energy about being involved in music you can you can forget all your worries and all your cares and, and it takes you to a to a place my happy place it is my happy place how do you feel about your music i agree and i think when i got into it as something where I had scheduled. It was like band practice, Tuesday nights and all that stuff. It was like a really nice 
kind of responsibility to have in my college life, you know, to be like, hang on, we got to do this. There's always a party going on. And it was sort of like, okay, we're going to write music today. And my friend Kevin, who played guitar, and Nick, who played the bass, they were just so into it and so talented that he was we could do that spot. all night. Yeah, he's insane. The picks would melt on the strings because he's going so fast. I was and, watching him play like, like uh, just chords and then licks, and I'm like, holy shit, he's doing that with a pick. Yeah, it was like he was playing sort of flea kind of. Totally. Uh, you know what I mean? Like he, he's very talented, super quick, and it was really nice for him at the time because. He had uh, his daughter when he was 15. And wow. so they he had a young family. He had to grow up quickly. So he would he stopped going to school and he, he became a car mechanic right away just to take on all this responsibility as a kid. And then his like relief was like, we'd come, everyone's asleep at night. He has soundproofed his whole garage. <laughs> and he was just like, you guys, you're here, let's go. you know. And he got to have this outlet for him of still being a, a Grom. And but being a grown up at the same time, and he's such a legend. It was it's crazy to see him now. He's a grown up and looks back at it all, and his kids are all grown up, and they're right there listening to us play music all day long. Who do you listen to these days? Because uh, these days I see you playing your acoustic, and you <laughs> see, you send a few things out. But you're also good mates, and you got plenty of musicians who are friends, like Jack Johnson and those kind of guys. Are uh, who inspires you, and what do you listen to now? Yeah, I I actually got it was funny because. I was so it was I was crazy. I was so into punk rock. I had a twelve disc CD changer when they had those because I worked at Best Buy where I could get a good deal. And I remember taking these guys surfing one time, and they're like, "Are you kidding me? You don't have one CD that's not punk." You know? <laughs> at the time, I didn't, so I've grown a lot. <laughs> but uh, now I've got a nice mix of I even country music and. Uh, really cool acoustic stuff. I listen to more reggae now. Susie likes reggae music and stuff like that. So I have a little bit more of a variety, mellower stuff that doesn't, and I still mix in my punk here and there, but I'm more balanced. And lately it's been a lot of the storytelling in country songs, not like, uh, it's like outlaw country, like more like um, Merle Haggard, uh, George Strait, um, Alan Jackson. And Alan the, storing, Jackson. the storytelling reminds me of some of the punk bands that I listen to and like the way they they drive this melodic narrative, I'm like, there's some connections between punk, punk rock and country music for me. And the slower tempo of me, like traveling with an acoustic guitar, I like that that style of, the, of that rhythm. So I'm pretty pumped on it right now. And a lot of Hawaiian music too. A lot of Hawaiian music, yeah. I love that. People say, what do you like? Say, I like any kind of genre, I like it all. Yeah. Because I think it's all got a purpose and I'm with you, I love bands. I mean, one of my favorite bands is Counting Crows because Adam is such a good storyteller. And I think that's part of the narrative that makes great musicians as well, that they can really express what they're feeling in a story kind of format. Oh, 100%. I think that's... It's especially when you grow with music, it's like the sound, but also matched with the storytelling, it just can capture you. And and there's some Hawaiian songs like uh, Cyril Pahinui, he has this song called Sweet Memory. And it's there's some parts in English and a lot in Hawaiian. And, and I was able to like research the, what those words meant. And then I'm like, whoa, this, this song even got better and better. And the melody is so cool with that slack key. And there's this place called Dots in Wahiwa, it's like, like a like a dive bar basically but old school local people go there and they have music nights on sundays oh, and they get the craziest old school hawaiian musicians a woman who is in her 90s 
would just get called up, invited on stage, and she sings this old Hawaiian like plantation music that is that you almost can't find. And her voice is like an angel. And she just walked out of the crowd. She was just having a bowl of Simon and all of a sudden they invite her up on stage and she was amazing. They do that every Sunday. It's been shut because of everything, but my mind gets blown whenever I go to that show because you would just see people walking up that just love their culture and love their music. And then you're just going, I am so inspired to play for the rest of my life. You know, it's, it's incredible. It will be something that will always be in my life. Playing music, it's never going to stop. Now, where did the journey start for you for commentating? Uh, how did you get into it? Because people have asked me this question about Ronnie and, and other people I'm like, and they've asked it about myself. And I said, I basically fell in it. I was running a board riders club and, and I used to run pro juniors. And I'm pretty sure it was probably either Ronnie or Mitch Ross was hung over and didn't rock up. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I just had to oh, fill in. How did you get into it? Yeah, um, I, it was interesting. I went to UC Santa Barbara and we had a college surf team. And so when we'd compete, it was run by the NSSA organization. And we would travel up and down the California coast competing against surf teams. And they always had a guy doing beach announcing. And I was always listening to him going, oh man, I, I kind of want to try to do that one day, you know? And I was also attracted to broadcasts. So I started working at a local TV station um, called KEYT. It's like an ABC affiliate. It would be like your local channel three station. Yep. It's in Santa Barbara. And I worked on a football show there and never did stuff on camera, but until they, they had me do weird things on camera. I interviewed Jessica Simpson once, like when she was like releasing an album. And like, wow. Oh, it was pretty funny. But I was just trying to learn about the broadcast. And I, I really liked that, I, that sports center type show, you know, when they're breaking down football, baseball. I was obviously in love with surfing. And so the early webcasts were happening and I was listening to Potts and Shmoo and everybody. And I was just like watching it and going, man, I... I think I can do that. I just didn't know when or how, and I wasn't worried about it. I was just like, kind of, ah, I always like, cause I watched everything, you know, I was a big surf fan. So I was watching it all. And so when I graduated, NSSA was happening. I was watching a couple of my friends that were still in school surf. And I was just like, Hey, do you need someone to announce? You know? And they were like, Oh yeah, maybe come back next year, you know? And, um, because nationals were already happening and they called me and I came back and, did the regular season for the NSSA. And that's when I was like, oh yeah, I do love this. I, I, I was able to kind of fulfill that thought that I had of like, maybe I should try this. And, and it just went from there. And it was pretty cool because all my friends in college, we all lived on the beach uh, together and there's a little beach break out front. And I was always doing like impersonations of what commentary, like joking around quite a bit and uh just doing impersonating of all the people i've heard you know and which i actually are all friends with now <laughs> and worked with for a long time and they're like i remember you were calling our surf team heats and doing that whole thing and i and i was like doing it off the cuff and playing around more but i was always interested in it so did you do a course did you have any like education on it i took a couple of acting classes i mean not broadcast classes but i i thought about voice and diction yep and acting as electives because i was just attracted to that whole thing and i feel like that helped it was like we'd have to learn monologues in like a brooklyn accent or something and perform that in front of the the class but as far as learning a broadcast and the ins and outs of working with a producer and the whole show i kind of picked it up on the fly it was like hey your first broadcast 2007 a women's event in brazil 
And then it was just like, here I go. It was a transition from beach announcing to a broadcast and doing play-by-play in a booth. So, What do you think uh, makes a good commentator? Yeah, I feel like... I feel like it's a personal thing and uh, like speaking for myself, uh, like I always was when I was learning how to do it and stepping into that seat, I was sort of going, what's my frame of reference? You know, who am I, you know, in this? And for me in that role of play by play, my goal was always to bring the best out of whoever I was sitting next to, you know, and having that rapport. And for me as a lifelong surfer, I I wanted to put me as a surfer second and a being a broadcaster first. Yep. That makes sense. So I was I was more trying to be like I want to be a professional broadcaster. I'll drop my core at the door and be a surfer second. And then all my questions that I develop, I want to lead by that questioning to make my color guy feel better and give them more softballs so I can, even if I knew how I wanted to answer it, I, with my opinion, I could lead by that conversation. And, um, that's how I began it. So I think each commentator has their own personality come through and there's that entertainment value of listening to each person. The contrast of personalities I think is brilliant when you have different types of commentators together who, who bring something new to the table. I think it's kind of cool that no one's exactly the same. But uh, if you have something that you kind of live by and follow, I think uh, I think it always comes out really well because people get to know who you are. Yeah, I definitely think that all you guys on on the webcast, uh, Ronnie's definitely got his own way of going about things. Uh, Richie's learning and, and getting better all the time. I personally love your commentating. And then you get someone like Bugs who... As a surf fanatic, you just know what he brings to the table, right? It's it's like a little bit like BL, where it's not always clean, but the history of those two guys, their knowledge and their standing in our community is huge. So it brings all these little bits and pieces to what is pretty brilliant, I reckon. I agree. Yeah, it's like, and that's what's so brilliant about being those color commentator roles is all rabbit has to do is play rabbit that's what we want that's what we those are the stories <laughs> yeah. we want to hear you know like uh, bl we want him to be bl like tell us your opinion on your reaction to things and i i always encourage those color commentators i've worked with it's like in a subjective sport i think there's this fear sometimes of like oh i don't want to be wrong and but then if you've already accomplished all this as your as a surfer as a world champ or however you participated it's like you never can really be wrong because that's your opinion. That's your take on a story. And I think some of the best color guys aren't afraid to say something and actually go, you know what, now that I've thought about it, you know, I like this or, you know, just putting it out there of playing them being free in their own opinions. And I think, uh, I think that really stands out with good color commentary. I love at Narrabeen, Rabs just said it how he felt. Like, you know, most time you don't want to rock the boat as a commentator. And, and there was a heat where, I think it was the Italo heat, where there was so much controversy, right, whether he landed it, where he should have got the actual score on the terms and stuff like that. And, and Rabs just basically came out and said what he felt. And then he sort of had to pull it back and then go, oh, you know what, uh, you know, but that's just my opinion. But that's what we want to see. We don't want to see like this formatted where you have to go down a certain line. You want those guys with the experience, given their actual proper opinion, how they see it. Well, and it's it's surfing, right? It's funny because you know what the conversations are outside of the booth. Yep. 
everywhere around the world, you don't want to not have those in the booth because that's where the reactions come, you know, on a close call and a subjective sport. It's like, we don't have the luxury of a three pointer or three point line where you're always getting the same number and know what it looks like. It's like, you're going to have, I mean, Debbie, you could probably think of event like 40 years ago, there's still heats where people are going, nah, this guy won, this guy won. It's like, that's always going to be a part of surfing. And when you can allow that conversation to free flow in the booth, it's like, it's always going to be good, you know? And sometimes you'll have different opinions and that debate's insane when, you know, you have one, someone thinking one thing and you can actually have an articulate debate and also try to represent the judge's opinion as well um, from their standpoint because that's a tough job. They're really, really good at what they do. Yeah. I believe the best commentators are the ones that can feed out information and key points without making it about themselves. Some guys can do it, some guys can't. It's got to be a natural thing. That's why I believe you're the best in the business because I can hear what you're saying and get what you're saying, but I'm more or less taking in the visual more more than anything else and i think that's a key thing where people want to want to hear your opinion and want to hear what everyone's got to say but also have a look at their own judgment do you believe that's, yeah. a, that's a key point as well i think well? that's uh, really well said and thanks my friend i think uh i think the interesting part is with telling a story in in a heat there's times when you have like the best stats you've ever come up with in the world you know i've had these moments in heats where i'm like oh my gosh i just figured all this stuff out i can't wait to deliver it and then there's like 100 waves written or there's a call coming in we're doing a a facetime with somebody or there's a guest in the booth and i'm just going like you know what if i never get to that stat it's okay you know and i think i've realized i think i'm at a point in my career where i think less is more and sticking with the action is always my that's always been center for me like always play by play what's happening in the water telling that story first and foremost and when you can expand on it with a key stat or a key backstory um you can really bring out the best in the broadcast and it's all from our booth to the switcher who's running the evs to the producer to the director picking shots and when all of that is working together, there's moments in a broadcast, there's long days and surfing, but there's some heats where you feel like everyone was together, where sometimes I'll begin a story when it's flat and then the producer's like, I got that vision. And they're like finding it through the EVS player. Boom, they, they like get the vision up while you're still on this topic and you come out of it right when a wave's coming and you're going, oh my gosh, how seamless was that? And so with all those people in motion, it's like this choir that's, balancing each other out and that's i think the beauty of broadcast and live tv that is uh, addicting because you you feel alive during it and it it brings out the best in the people who sit in those positions because things can go wrong in live tv all the time and they do and surfing's so unpredictable so when you feel this rhythm where everyone's moving and changing together uh it feels really good I love the fact that you guys can pull out endless amounts of stats. It blows me away, your knowledge and of the history of our sport, right? But what I also love about the uniqueness of surfing is that the relationships you build with the athletes and everyone inside that bubble, right? It gives you the opportunity to be able to deliver that on to the world stage because everyone's got a story. Like we were talking before about my favorite photo which is a great night we all had in trestles right so uh, the fact that you're inside that bubble and you're a part of the journey of everyone that makes it special as well doesn't it because you've got an insight to what is actually going on where other sports you don't really have that 
You know, it's interesting. You brought up Jack Johnson earlier. I was sitting on the beach at Rocky Point and he stopped. He's such a cool dude. He's got time for everybody. And he just stopped. And of course, I want to ask him about music. He's asking me about heats. I kept changing it back to music and he's going back to heats. And uh, he's such a good surfer. But one thing he mentioned, he was just like, wow, I didn't know that before about Jadson and, and all the, the stories that I heard. I'm loving now knowing this guy's story because now I'm like, really invested in his heat you know now if if the waves are subpar or maybe it's an event that you know is in a different time zone it's like he's actually like oh i want to see jadson surf because now i know that he's supporting his family back home uh where he's come from how often he's fallen off tour just all these insights that he just never knew of before and i was like oh that's that's really cool it's like everyone like you said does have a story no matter if they've have a world title or they're just beginning and you can kind of see that now with you know, Morgan Siblick's profile and it'll be just as important when Morgan has his next heat and when Matthew McGillivray has his that you get to find out more about him. And the best place to do it is, you know, we can look online and try to find the best stories we can and that helps a lot. But when you run into them and actually have a personal connection and they tell you something funny that you know you can share, you know, it's uh, it makes it really fun. Yeah, I find that because you know, I don't particularly think I'm that good of a commentator, but what, what I enjoy is when people come to me and they say, hey, dude, I love the stories you have about the athletes. And I'm lucky I'm in a position where I've been in the industry for 25 years in Australia. And that sort of makes me go, you know what, maybe I should continue to commentate because people want to see the heat, but they also want to hear about they're not robots they're people they've got journeys and they love to hear the stories about their life yeah i love your rhythm dim you're hard on yourself man (laughs) you know what's funny is because when i come to the northern beaches you sound like the northern beaches to me so it's like it's (laughs) a thing like that where it's consistent it's that consistent voice so when i'm on a break at the you know oz open or sydney surf pro now it's like I feel I know where I am, you know, and I think there's that connection with voices, you know, when for me, Vin Scully, when, when he was working for the Dodgers all those years, when he started talking, I was just like, that sounds like baseball, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and it's like you, like when I hear you on the beach announcing and I'm like, Oh, yep. I'm back in Dim's old hometown. Everything's going to have, we're going to have a good time, you know? <laughs> 